I, I want to tell you, I've uh, been preaching for a while to just Terry and a couple of staff members. I can't get an amen out of them. They won't pray the her prayer, and they won't let me baptize them. I just, I, I don't know what the problem is, but man, I am so glad to see you today, and I'm glad for those that are joining us uh, by streaming. We have people that have been watching us in South Africa, in Brazil, in Colombia, across the United States, in Canada, uh, people that we have never been able to touch before. And so God has taken what the devil means for evil and turned it to good and allowed us to do good in churches all across our land. And I, I'm grateful for you being here and uh, we'll all do the air high fives and the air elbows and everything else until we can finally hug. And when we can finally hug, uh, we probably won't even be able to have a song. We'll just be standing out in the atrium hugging all the time. Amen. Let me pray for us if I could. Father, these are difficult times, physically, emotionally, locally, nationally, globally. There's much stress and anxiety and fear and hate. God, in the midst of that, our only hope is you. We need a miracle. We need a miracle of divine proportions. We need a sweeping move of your spirit across our land. We need a church that is revived and a nation that turns its face to you in desperation. Lord, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all need to get to the cross and we all need to get to Jesus. And I pray that before the end of this hour, we will find ourselves in the presence of Jesus, seeing him as the all-sufficient one. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 5, and I hope that you are getting on the app or on the website and getting the notes because it will help you with some of these messages uh, to not have to write as much if you do take notes. But we're talking about don't miss your miracle. Don't miss your miracle. And we're going to go all the way through Mark chapter 5 today. So uh, buckle that t-shirt that's on the back of your seat and hold on because we're, we're going to go fast. The gospel is full of miracles. The life of Jesus is full of miracles, but it's also full of people that missed miracles because they didn't believe, because they wouldn't avail themselves of the opportunity that Christ gave them. In, in fact, it's easy for us to miss miracles. We get so caught up in a moment or a event and God walks right by us and we don't see him because we may not be looking for him. But in this chapter, there are three specific individuals that Jesus performs a miracle in their life. The demoniac, the woman with the issue of blood, and Jairus' daughter. In these three stories, we see Jesus as a deliverer from the demonic, as a healer, and as the resurrection and the life. That pretty much covers it. That pretty much covers all that Jesus can do. All three of these people had something in common. They had no hope without Jesus. There was no other option. There was no plan B. Mark Golly says, we try to rationalize Christ's power. The bold nature of miracles is an offense to modern sensibilities. 
So we exegetic, do exegetical backflips to avoid offending these sensibilities. One of my favorite quotes of Ron Dunn is one that was misunderstood a lot. The only problem with miracles is there's never one when you need one. And sometimes that's what it feels like because you hear a story or you see somebody's testimony and God intervenes and God steps in in their life and, and does something miraculous and supernatural and, and you go, wow. But then you say, where's mine? Where's mine? When do I get to have that kind of testimony? Now, miracles are not a name it, claim it. It wasn't at the time of Jesus. It's still not. The first guy that we're going to meet is this demoniac in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Now, this guy is wild. I mean, he is wild. He could not be tamed. The, Jesus and the disciples get out of a boat. Chapter 5, verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, in the country of the Gerasenes, and when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, or dwelling in the tombs, with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now just picture this. Jesus has been healing, he's been doing miracles, he's been traveling, he gets out of the boat, and this wild man, this demon-possessed man, comes running toward him. Now, it's not in your Bible, this is just my sanctified imagination, okay? I think the disciples looked at each other and thought that wild, crazy guy running toward Jesus was a youth minister that had been on too many lock-ins. That's my personal opinion. And Garrett, can I get an amen? All right, got one. Verse 10, and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the of country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain, and the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Now, liberal theologians will tell you this didn't happen. The fact of the matter is, on the Sea of Galilee, there is only one place on the entire sea, and it is on the side of the ten cities of the Decapolis, of the Gerasenes, it's on that side of the sea where the sea where the land doesn't slope slowly down, but there's this just jutting out point and it goes straight down. You can drive right up to that point in your car or in your bus and go X marks the spot where 2,000 pigs became bacon. 
It's there. And so these demons are there, and you can tag this passage with John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Satan is a destructor. He's a destroyer. He, th- this demon was cutting himself. Now, we know that that is something that goes on in our culture and around the world with people cutting themselves because they feel no self-worth. Can I tell you something? You see the source of it right here. It's demonic influence. It's demonic influence. Demons influencing somebody to harm themselves, and the demons get joy out of it. We need to pray for people that get caught in that kind of bondage. Listen, Jesus values people that don't value themselves. He loves people that don't love themselves. This man was hopeless. He was a Gentile. He was demon-possessed, and they couldn't subdue him. The word means to tame a wild animal. Now, I want to give you some observations. If you're looking to Jesus for help, I want to give you some observations uh, about what Jesus can do for you in a moment, you're not here in demon possessed, at least I hope you're not. But, but whatever the situation, whatever the problem, these principles are true. Number one, Jesus meets us at the point of our need. Whatever your need is, Jesus can meet you there. There is no need that you have that Jesus will ever say, I'm not adequate for that. Jesus meets us at the point of our need. He works grace in the lives of those that we avoid or those that scare us or terrify us. Secondly, Jesus has unquestionable authority. He has authority over death and hell and the grave. He had authority over all these demons, this legion, for we are many. He came to set people free. He can set us free from sexual addictions, from drugs, from alcohol, from perversion. He can set anybody free of anything that will give their heart totally to Jesus. He deals with stuff that's difficult. He doesn't just try to soothe it. He overcomes it. Thirdly, Jesus has compassion on the least and the lost. You know, we are most like Jesus when we love people that the world doesn't love. Jesus went to an area he knew that this demon-possessed man would be there, and he went to change his life. Jesus has compassion on the least and the lost. He doesn't avoid them. He doesn't practice social distancing from people that are different from him. Next, Jesus doesn't leave us where he finds us. Man, I'm, I'm glad of that. He doesn't leave us where he finds us. Look at verse 15. They observed the man who had been demonized sitting down and clothed and in his right mind. This was a complete transformation. Jesus just didn't deliver him from the demons. He gave him a new life. He's clothed and in his right mind. Nobody has to subdue him. Now, if you had seen somebody like this that could break chains and shackles and could not be subdued and all of a sudden he's sitting down 
and he's in his right mind. Whatever your problem is, or whatever your issue is, you would have to think, if you were thinking at all, maybe this Jesus can do something for me. And I would submit to you, he can. He can. But Jesus demands a decision. He always demands a decision. He does not ever leave us without having to make a choice. The man became devoted. The people of the city rejected Jesus. You know why? He cut into their income. It cost them business. Listen, the people of Gerizim would have rather had their pigs than have Jesus. So they wanted him to go away. And for all that we can read and understand in the scriptures, Jesus never returned to this area. They loved their pigs. They missed their pigs. They wanted their pigs. They wanted their income. And when Jesus showed up and changed one man, they said, no, we, don't, we don't want anything to do with that. You see, no matter what Jesus does, there are always going to be people that are going to say, I don't want to change. I don't want to change. I want to, I want to live in my misery. I want to live in my self-inflicted suffering. I want to live in my misery. And, and they will never respond no matter what they see Jesus do, but Jesus is there anyway, and he uses unlikely people. I love this. He tells this demon-possessed man to go home and tell your friends and family. Go home and tell them what happened. Go testify to them. Go tell them what's happened with you. Go tell them what I did for you, how the demons were cast out of you. Of all the three requests, there's only one that is denied, and this man says he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you go home. You go home. You know what he became? He became a missionary to the Gentiles. Jesus said, you go show them what's happened to you. You go tell them what's happened to you. And he went away and began, verse 20, to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, there's a side note here. You can marvel at the works of Jesus and never give your heart to Jesus. You can be impressed with Jesus from a distance and never give your heart to Jesus. Here's a demoniac who has been set free and he's become a missionary. Now there's the desperate woman. This is, this is a parenthetical miracle. It happens while he's on the way to Jairus' home. This is, so this is parenthetical. He's delayed on his way to go deal with Jairus' daughter who is dying. This woman, this desperate woman, verse 25, who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Now here's what we need to understand about her. Because she has this hemorrhage, this issue of blood, she's unclean. She cannot go to the synagogue. She cannot bring her offering. She can't do anything. She is separated. She is an outcast. She has an incurable disease. She has spent every penny that she has, and all she's done is gotten worse. Now, for this particular disease, the Talmud listed 11 possible cures or treatments for this trouble. Tonics, astringents, but most of them were just superstitions. 
Maybe, just maybe, she knew enough about God to have remembered the lepers by the gate in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 9, who said, why should we sit here and die? Let's just go in to the city. Maybe she was thinking about that, but whatever she was thinking about, she got up, she went through the crowd, and she got to Jesus. Verse 28, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Her faith was aroused. She had heard stories maybe about what Jesus had done for other people. And she goes, if I could just get to him, if I could just touch him, I don't even have to talk to him, but if I could just touch his garment, if I could just work my way through that crowd and and just put my hands on his robe, maybe that would help. It's her last option and it was her best option. Look at this quote. When she touched Jesus, she touched all that God had promised and commanded. When she touched Jesus, she touched all that God had promised and commanded. Manly Beasley said, a faith that pleases God is not some passive state of mind. It is not some intellectual concept of God. It is not some emotional stirring that causes you to sit around and talk about how much you believe that God can do. Her condition and her cure and her confession are a key to this story because she is the picture of every desperate person in this world that thinks they have no hope. But if they can just get to Jesus... Jesus turns around and asks a question, who's touched me? And you know, the disciples, they were Baptist. And so they said, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Who touched you? He's got this whole crowd around you. Everybody's touching you. Everybody wants to be. I mean, you're the man. Everybody wants to be around you. You're the guy. What are you talking about? Who touched me? You see, Jesus knows the difference. Even now, he knows the difference between a casual, indifferent touch and somebody that's trying to get to him in desperation. He knows the difference. He said, no, somebody touched me because power has gone out of me. Power for, literally power from him on account of who he was went to someone else. She touched him, power left him, power healed her. Jesus called her out. Why? She just wanted to slip back and say, I can't believe this, I've been healed. I'm just going to go praise God, and I, I'm just going to go clean up. And Jesus called her out. He wasn't calling her out to embarrass her. He was calling her out to build a relationship with her. He calls her daughter. It's the only time he ever uses that term of endearment for anyone. Here's a woman that everybody said, don't get close to her. She's unclean. She shouldn't be here. She shouldn't be around us. I'm sure people in the crowd were talking about, that's that woman. She's not even supposed to be here. She's not supposed to be in this meeting. She's not supposed to be around Jesus. She's unclean. She's an outcast. Daughter. You know what Jesus did right then? He pointed her out that everybody else was there for other reasons, but she was there for him. Isn't that easy to do? Easy to be around God's people. 
but not want to be around what God's doing. Kind of like to live in, in the shadows of it. John Phillips said, bleeding, broken, and bankrupt. She turned to Jesus. Bleeding, broken, and bankrupt. She turned to Jesus. By the way, that describes a lot of people in our world today. Bleeding, broken, and bankrupt. Good time to turn to Jesus. Vance Havner said, human extremity became God's opportunity. You see, when you're at your lowest point, that's when God can do his best work. Because you've quit trying to do it yourself. I've noticed something in the Bible. Some of the greatest work that God ever did in people, he did with people who went to the greatest effort to get to him. Zacchaeus getting up in a tree. The paralytic being lowered through the roof. Uh, Bartimaeus crying out, which we'll see later on in the gospel. This woman, she touched the master and he changed her life. Just, just a side note here. It's real easy for us in the more we get back toward a normal, for us to be just a crowd and not a congregation. It's easy for us to just like to hang around when things are happening, but not really be intimate with Christ. And it's also easy to be casual about our relationship with Christ and somebody really needs to get to Jesus. They need a relationship with him. And we, by our inconsistencies or our indifference or our casual nature, become a distraction to them getting to Jesus rather than a door opener for them to get to Jesus. Just, just a thought. I'm reminded of an old hymn, Come Ye Weary, Heavy Laden, Lost and Ruined by the Fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Don't wait until you get better to get to Jesus. Get to him now. Thirdly, the desperate dad. We all find ourselves in places of desperation. Nothing gets us like children. Nothing gets our attention like when our children are suffering or when our children or our grandchildren are hurting. Nothing gets us like that. Eugene Peterson said, Prayer is not a leisure time activity. Matters of life and death, salvation and judgment, suffering and justice, peace and work, recrimination and reconciliation are being worked out in our families and among our neighbors all the time, in our nation and our world all the time. We must not be silent, passive spectators to any of it. We find ourselves quite miraculously on the front lines where God's praying people have always found themselves. Pick up in verse 22. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up upon seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly saying, my little daughter, is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may be well and live. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. 
Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus overheard what was being spoken and said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began, verse 40, to laughing at him, putting them out. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Little side note right there on verse 40. Jesus is not going to do anything in front of people that mock him. If he's going to do a miracle, he's going to do it with people that want him to do one and see him. He's not going to do it with people that are mocking him for being there to do something. Verse 41, and taking the child by the hand, he said, get up, little girl, arise, get up. Now, everybody says she's dead. There are mourners there. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. Death had laid its hand on this man's only daughter. And he went to Jesus. They were walking at a fast pace. I'm sure he was thinking, can we walk a little faster? You know, Terry always complains that I walk fast. I just walk fast. And, you know, I I just seem to leave her sometimes. I shouldn't do it. I'm just confessing my sin. But, you know, I just just get to walking fast. I, I like to do that. And I'm sure Josh was just under his breath saying, come on, Jesus, we can walk a little faster than this. I mean, come on, we we got to get there. My daughter is about to die. you got to get there. But Jesus is delayed by this woman with the issue of blood. And you've got to know this dad is saying, are you kidding me? Of all the times for her to show up now when I need him more than ever, of all that, I've humbled myself before him. I'm a synagogue official. He's been kicked out of the synagogue. But of all the times for this woman to get in our way? But you see, the delay wasn't a problem for Jesus. In fact, it was a test of faith for the Father. Would he trust Jesus when he didn't act according to his schedule? So, Death had outrun Jesus. They come and say, why trouble the master? I I love this statement. To Jesus, death was no more of a barrier than sleep. Now, you've got to chew on that for a while. To Jesus, death was no more of a barrier than sleep. Jesus says to the man, fear not, only believe. Just keep on believing. You came to me believing that I could do this. Continue to believe what I can do. Your faith is facing a hopeless situation, but I am the hope of the world. His faith was certainly tested by the delay, but now it would be shattered by her death. Now, in Eastern customs, there were professional mourners. There still are in Eastern customs, and and they come out, and the women uh, scream, and the men chant and moan, and and the more noise they make, the more they sound like they really care about what's happening. And folks, can I tell you, we, we have some of that in our world. 
where people come and pretend that they care about what's going on, but they really just trying to draw attention to themselves. And these were professional mourners. Every town had them. You had a death, they showed up outside, they wailed and they moaned and they groaned. And then Jesus shows up and says, what, what are you people crying about? She's not dead, she's just asleep. And their screams turn to scorn. And they begin to laugh at Jesus. Now what can we learn from this account? First of all, the man risked his reputation to go to Jesus. You see, one of the things that keeps people from coming to Christ is pride. They're just too proud to come to Jesus. They're too proud to admit that they need Jesus in their lives. He was willing to... He's, he's a synagogue official. He's willing to risk his reputation. Secondly, at the lowest point, Christ willingly steps in. Verses 21 through 24. Jairus wasn't looking for a theological discussion. He humbled himself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said, I'll go. Jesus went with him. He walked with him. Thirdly, the work of God is not limited to our timetable. Boy, that's a tough one to learn. The work of God is not limited to our timetable. The delays of Christ are not denials, verses 25 through 34. Jesus stopped and healed her, the woman. Every minute was crucial. Barnhouse says, our Lord is infinite and his help to one person does not interfere with the help he has promised to another. You see, Jesus doesn't have to say, you know, I'm, I'm, out, I'm out of miracles today. I just stop, wait, wait, get back. I'm, I can't do anything else. I'm out of miracles. I, I've done all I can do. My tank's empty. What he does for one person doesn't stop what he can do for you. When he intervenes in one life doesn't mean he can't intervene in your life. Number four. Jesus always gets the last word. He always gets the last word. By the way, did you, do you realize that Jesus is not in the funeral business? He's in the resurrection business. Aren't you glad? I, I mean, I'm glad that the cemetery doesn't get the final word. Jesus is in the resurrection business. Verse 35 through 43, Jesus saw the servant coming, heard what he said. But now I want you to notice something. And I sent this to some folks yesterday because they came to mind when I was working on this message. Jesus wasn't ready to reveal himself as the resurrection at this point. So he says, she's only sleeping. He would not reveal himself as the resurrection until the death of Lazarus when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Right now, he's not ready to reveal to this crowd in this moment that he's the resurrection. But I love what one commentator says, and you need to hold on to this. Jesus declares the girl's death to be merely sleep because he wills in this particular case, to make death as impermanent as sleep by raising the girl to life. She's just sleeping. Sleep is not permanent. You wake up. I woke up too early today. 
Sleep is not permanent. You wake up. Death is not permanent. There's a resurrection coming. Death is the last enemy, but in Christ it doesn't have the last word. Somebody ought to say amen. I'll tell you, it's, it's hard in this season, and pastors all over the country are trying to figure all this out. It's hard when you can't gather and visit a family at a time of death. It's hard when you can only have family members at a graveside funeral and only so many. But I want to tell you, Corona doesn't have the last word. And the cemetery doesn't have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And one day with a shout, he's going to descend and the dead in Christ are going to rise. And death will not have won anything in the life of the believer. I want to end with an odd story. 1991, the movie City Slickers. I don't know if you ever saw that, but uh, Jack Palance played a cowboy and uh, Billy Crystal played Mitch, a city slicker who went out uh, to a ranch to learn how to be a cowboy. Uh, which it takes more than a few days to learn how to do that. And so the, the cowboy's name is Curly. And they're out there on this expedition. And Curly says, do you want to know the secret of life? And Mitch says, know what? And Curly goes, one thing. He holds up a finger. He goes, one thing. And, and Mitch says, your finger? And Curly says, one thing, just one thing, you stick to that, and everything else doesn't mean nothing. And Mitch said, that's great, but what's the one thing? And Curly said, that's for you to figure out. Can I tell you something? You don't have to figure it out. The one thing is Jesus. And he overcomes everything that you're afraid of everything that is uncertain, everything that is unraveling. He overcomes everything that you've ever worried about. He has and he will. You just got to get through the crowd and get to Jesus. Let's pray together. I want to ask you just one quick question and then I want to pray. Just by the lifting of a hand, how many of you would say right now, I need a miracle in my life? Just raise your hand. I need a miracle in my life. All over this room, some of you are watching by streaming. I need a miracle in my life. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to help these dear, sweet people that have raised their hands to get to you, to not be discouraged but to keep believing to keep believing to keep believing that you are there with them that you are for them and that you get the last word Lord we may not ever get all the answers we want to all the questions that we have but we have you you are the one thing we need and I pray that you would meet every person that has lifted their hand today at the point of their need in Jesus name Amen